Hey everybody, this is Brian coming at you from late 2022. You're about to listen to one of the original episodes of the Internet History Podcast, a project I started way back in 2014. It eventually became a book called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone, written by me, but these are the original chapters and interviews I did for that book. So here you have all the original oral history interviews, the original players of the internet era in their own words. You'll get hours more detail and stories here than I was able to even fit in the book. If you like this podcast, buy the book, but also the podcast stand on their own. Almost 300 hours of original source material of internet history. They've been downloaded about 3 million times over the years. And if you like what you hear here, search and subscribe to what I do today, the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast, a daily tech news podcast I've been doing since 2018. Basically, the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast is the history of the internet every day in real time. <laughs> That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. This is Chapter 5, Supplemental Episode 9. Halsey Minor is an absolute legend when it comes to the online era. Along with names like Jerry Yang, Jeff Bezos, Pierre Omidyar, and others, Halsey Minor deserves credit for creating one of the first truly great companies on the web, CNET. Halsey recounts for us the CNET creation story, but he also goes into his early days on Wall Street with another entrepreneurially focused young man named Jeff Bezos. And toward the end of our talk, Halsey talks about the project that he's embarked upon now, which is working in the Bitcoin space. Interestingly enough, Halsey feels that Bitcoin as a technology has the potential to be every bit as revolutionary as the web was and perhaps even more so. So please enjoy a conversation with Halsey Minor. Halsey Minor, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Uh, glad to be here. Uh, I like to start sometimes with, uh, with people's educational backgrounds, if they're interesting. And I'm, it looks to me that you got a, uh, an anthropology degree, is that correct? <laughs> if that's interesting, yes, I did. I got an anthropology degree. Well, it's interesting because... How do you go from anthropology to Wall Street? Well, I actually started a um, I actually started a company in uh, in in college that would have been the equivalent of, say, Zillow, and I put um, computers around uh, the University of Virginia area, and people could pick apartments that match their uh, their location and price needs, and it would spit out a a list of um, matching properties, but 
I had to walk around with a floppy disk and reload the database on uh, the three different places where um, where where the kiosks were. So I was longing for some sort of network that would connect them all together. It was called Rental Network, um, and it was in. So I started that in in I guess eighty six, eighty seven in college. Wow. Uh, and um, and you know, I had a lot of I guess math background in high school, but. Um, but um, yeah, so I, you know, I was I was an entrepreneur, and I was uh, um, and I was um, an anthropology major. And I guess you know, when the Wall Street guys came looking at resumes, they they got tired of looking at finance resumes and wanted <laughs> something a little more unusual, which I guess I I fit. But when you um, when you end up at Merrill Lynch, you're doing networking stuff, or in some capacity, is that right? Well, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it, you know. It all went back in the job I have today, which we can come back to much later, mm -hmm. is, is about as close as I've ever had to what my my original vision in uh, in high school was. I wanted to go and uh, I wanted to do economic development through global finance. And so so I took anthropology. I took uh, I, I actually took um, my language was Arabic because the in the, in the late 80s, um, all the money in the world was really in the Middle East. <clears throat> and um, so and and then I went into finance to kind of round all that that out. Um, but, you know, I also obviously started this other company. So I, I had technology experience and and I went to Wall Street and I realized that I didn't like the finance part, at least the investment banking finance part wasn't what I thought it was. Um, but but the technology part, um, you know, which had always been a sort of passion of mine, um, led me to build the first intranet, um, I believe ever for Merrill Lynch in 1989. And so after my two year stint was over in, in investment banking, I built, um, uh, a system called ML info, which was hypertext and ran across their, their local network to about a thousand employees. <clears throat> and I did that for about a year. And then and then uh, and then Jeff Bezos became my partner in, a, in, in another project doing for, for Merrill. Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of I guess the best way to describe it was my actual experience in banking was, you know, not what I investment banking was not what I thought it would be. And sort of my passion for technology uh, was given room to sort of take root. And so that's kind of, you know, the rest of the story is kind of one of of. Um, um, you know, technology innovation more than, you know, anything else. Do you, just as a fun aside, would you imagine that your bosses at Merrill Lynch would have thought that these two 20-year-olds uh, would go on to be, you know, uh, legends of, of entrepreneur and technology? <clears throat> well, <clears throat> I'll tell you, the, the uh, um, so what happened was, there's a guy named, I think his name is Herb um, Allison, Herb Allison, and mm -hmm. he was the um, COO of Merrill Lynch, and he came in, and the reason that that Jeff and I had to leave Merrill, we had like a seven hundred thousand dollar project to build um, uh, a system that people take for granted today, but would send news stories about the appropriate topic to the appropriate person internally. And Jeff and I were going to create a customized newspaper out of it, and we had about a seven hundred and fifty thousand dollar contract, and Merrill lost money. And on their second pass through the organization and cost cutting, they they cut our project. And I went out the door, and uh, and and obviously Jeff, um, uh, you know, went out the door. And so, 
So he he later came back and was just sort of meeting with people in the in the valley in the late in the late nineties. Uh, and I said, and at the time I can't remember. We were like a five or six billion dollar company. I think Amazon was around a fifteen billion dollar company. And and I met him and I said, you have no idea, but the second time you cut costs, you you sent both Jeff and I out out the, out the door. And uh, I said, you know, I want, honestly I want to. I, you know, I, I want to thank you because it ended up being a great thing, obviously for for, for both of us. And um, but he um, he actually was ended up being this guy. Um, I think it's Herb Allison, and um, it really was. Uh, I mean, really, it was a second sort of pass in in cost cutting that they did in ninety uh, uh, ninety, and um, and that you know um, sent. You know, Jeff and I, you know, off in different directions. And I was just remembering a funny, you know, um, a friend of mine um, um, now owns, owns uh, TED, the conference. But I, I was telling a friend of mine, Rob Reed, that the, the day that, um, I mean, this really ages me, the, the day that, that Jeff and I decided uh, after that project we were going to go our separate ways, I was at the first TED conference, TED One. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is there that I met Louis Rossetto for the first time. Right, right. Who had a magazine? He was showing off his magazine from like um, Amsterdam or something. Right, right. right. <laughs> so, so um, but um, but yeah, no, he so no, so he actually they they actually do know who walked out the door just because when he came to visit us, I I I gave him the the oral history of what happened. Right, I, they certainly know now. Sure. Um, well, so. You're at this point. You're you're 27 years old, and and you're going to strike off on your own. Is it? Did you just always have this entrepreneurial streak? So you knew that you were going to go off and do something eventually, and Wall Street had disappointed you. Where what what was your what was your thinking about what your career would be at that point? Yeah, no, I, I'm. I mean, I, I I know it sounds almost sort of cliche, but I had a fence painting business when I was in in, uh, in high school. I would come back from college, and I would. I would paint uh, fences with this horrible stuff called Kentucky tar paint that was, you know, burn your skin and, you know, in the burning but in the burning heat. But it was uh, it was a very profitable business, and I and I hired friends to do it with me. They didn't do it for me; they did it with me. Um, and um, and so I had, you know, I always, um, um, yeah. I, I mean, going back to when I was a kid, I I, I sent. Uh, Milton Bradley, uh, a game idea for you know th- three level checkers, and when they sent me back a thing saying that they didn't even look at it, I was I was shattered, and I was probably like ten. So I, I've always been, I've always been. Um, I, I don't think there's ever a time in my life that I didn't sort of see myself as kind of doing my own thing or trying to be entrepreneurial. Um, so banking was a way for me to kind of get into. Uh, investment banking was a way for me to sort of get into this concept I want, which is sort of innovate with finance kind of around the world for for for, for development purposes. Um, and I just realized that's not what banking, investment banking was. Um, but but yeah, I think I've always been self-directed. And so I, you know, use my experience in investment banking to, to build the Internet and um, and um, which was, you know, a lot of experience in an industry that didn't exist yet. Right. So where does the where does the idea for CNET uh, come from? You wanted to do a television channel initially, correct? Um. So 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 yes and no. It was um the it's one of those things when the when the 
the story gets told a couple of times early on. It sort of becomes a, a point of fact because everybody goes back and and looks for old stories and, and then sort of picks up where the old stories left off. That That's partially true. I had no experience in television. Um, and it's sort of a bit of a miracle that as young as I was, I launched four shows on the USA and Sci-Fi Channel with absolutely zero TV experience. Where, where my experience did come from, though, was I did, did know about technology and about online services. And I probably knew more about those than just about, you know, it, well, I mean, there was a very small group of people who had ever built an Internet in 1990 and um, with hyper, hypertext. So so but the, the story that. Um, it is true is that I was actually um, home one day and I was sick and I turned on the TV and there were empty channels. And I thought to myself, wow, there's, you know, somebody should do a cable channel on technology. My experience was online services. So where the company was really started and the reason that we actually got on USA and Sci-Fi and why they sort of bought into our vision was – the idea was really to take what I knew about, which was online services, and combine it with 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 television, so that television could would could provide uh, one kind of experience, which is seeing the technology, and then the 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 text part, which is really kind of what online was, could provide the depth and the sort of editorial kind of component. And it was always the merging of these two things that was unique about CNET and sort of set us apart as a media company because we we had both a successful TV operation which got smaller and smaller by you know by uh, comparison right. uh, and then we had an online operation which you know ended up being extraordinarily successful right well let, but, let, let but me... my experience was my experience was all on the online side um, but I hired really good people on the TV side and so we actually launched online and on TV in April of uh, 1995 so let me take you back for a second. So when you're starting this project, it's 92, 93-ish, correct? So the 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 boom that is going to be the, the web and the internet is not really started yet. Is the idea that you're just going to do a consumer-facing technology content play of some kind? Yeah, so... Um... So in our business plan, which um, I wish I had one of the old ones, but um, in our business plan, um, about half of it was dedicated to online resources. And, um, and so the, the entire business plan was focused around Prodigy and CopyServe. Mm, uh -huh. um, and then there was, and then, I mean, it was just interesting. It was, it was always fun to go back and look. And then there was a third online service that, that we called an up-and-comer, and it was America Online. And my business plan, they had 25,000 subscribers at the time, and but it said they're they're worth watching because they're very content focused, and um, and could be a good partner. And so, so when 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 Paul Allen invested in the company, which was really the, the impetus that we had to kind of get launched, and put 10 million dollars in, he did as part of his Wired World strategy, and he did because we had we had two things that he wanted to see together, which was television and online. And, and Microsoft was looking at doing this with the same thing in the same genre, actually as a competitor to ours with, um, with a cable company called TCI. And Jamie Kellner, who, and, and, um, and Jamie Kellner, who had been uh, one of the founders of Fox and went on to start the WB, um, the, net, the network, the WB, Paul Allen called him and, um, and said, you know, I have this, you know, I want to do a, 
uh, you know, basically a, a cable network to TV and then and online stuff. And he recommended that Paul Allen talk to us. And that's how Paul Allen came around and sort of became the the primary funder of the company when um, when we launched uh, both online on USA and sci-fi. So so that it was the vision of bringing the media together because each each you have to if you go back to that time, you know, online was not going to have video on it and it wasn't going to have it anytime soon either. But it did do text. And so it, and it did do very in-depth information. And, and that was really the Achilles heel of video, of video which is which is very kind of surfacy but visual. Um, you couldn't and, and, you know, people don't want to sit through computer reviews uh, on TV, but they but they will read them online. So it was it was it was the combination of these two that was the reason for Paul's Allen's investment. And with him came the the desire on his part that we go and build on the Microsoft network, and which was starting at the time as a AOL killer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I um, you know I I I argued successfully that that ultimately all of these networks were going to have to point open up to the internet, and as I think I called in the meeting, I said the internet is the lingua franca. It is the it is the one sort of service that every online service, every proprietary online service will have to allow their members to go to. So it is there that we'll make our, you know, we'll make our stand. Um, so, so yeah, so the TV and the, and the online, they all launched together. They were built simultaneous. They were, there was two separate business plans for each that were written. Um, and, and part of it was that, I mean, on, to be honest with you, part of the reason was I knew online, but I didn't think anybody in their right mind was going to was going to back up a content company on Prodigy, CompuServe, and AOL doing doing computer content. But but you, people like John Malone were talking about the 500 channel future, and that's where all the interactive TV, and that's where all the heat was. So you know, why not combine both of those things and you know into um, you know into into a into a media company. So let me let me separate the two just a bit. When when the the shows launched, I, I believe the first one was CNET Central, right? No, I think there were four. There were uh, there were four that launched at the same time. Exact same time. Okay. So what are those shows? It was a two hour. It was a two hour block. What are those shows covering? What is the content there? All technology. Is it is it product reviews? Is it is it technology news? It's games. It's news. It's. Uh... It's, you know, I mean, basically the way we approach technology was technology itself as a subject on on um, on on television is kind of boring. But 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 race cars with technology is kind of cool and satellites with technology is kind of cool and skis with technology is kind of cool. So so we, we just kind of looked at uh, a sort of a vertical slice of society from a, from the point of view of the of the the technology um uh uh interested or obsessed and and because uh, i didn't have any experience with television we hired we had a great team of of people under kevin wendell who had run marketing and programming at fred fox and went on to was become ceo of quincy jones entertainment and and um and and uh, interestingly um, the host of two of our shows um, was um, was Ryan Seacrest. Those were his first two TV jobs, mm-hmm. um, and so he did two TV shows for us. And um, and so 
And so I, I can't even, I mean, we can go back and search. I can't even remember what the, the, the shows were, but, but we ended up launching a fifth that was a syndicated show. And then that syndicated show ended up being replaced by a show called news.com on CNBC. That was a tech news show during the, during the, the, which was obviously a great deal of interest to the investing public during mm -hmm. the bubble. Uh, so same question for the, the website of CNET. When that launches, what is the content there? Is it, is it the, is it product reviews and things like that, or is it more of a news-based site, sort of what we would we would expect today? Um, well, um, seeing that it is 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 a lot of things. Probably some things people don't even know. Like every time anyone reads product information on any website, that 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 information itself comes from CNET. Mm. But um, but it is the the idea um, and the circle around CNET was the concept of being everything related to computers and technology, one brand, everything computers and technology. And so, but the, 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 how it was built out was obviously you can't start by building everything. So, so I built uh, a, a simple review function, but where I really focused was on software discovery and downloading. And I knew from AOL and CompuServe that, that was the vast majority of, uh, of the activity. And so I actually, I think I did probably the world's first uh, internet acquisition. And I bought a thing called the VSL, the virtual software library from a guy named Giga Turk in Slovenia in, um, in, uh, 1993, maybe. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, and so when, when I left, you know, I think the number was something like around 10 million people a day came and downloaded software at, uh, download.com. I was going to say that became download.com, right? Well, it became shareware.com. And when I left, there was shareware.com and download.com. And shareware.com was, was true to the original, um, the, the original service, which was software distributed around the internet and just, you know, and, 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 um, and described by people and, you know, their sort of archives and download was our fully reviewed, you know, kind of, um, curated service. Shareware was actually the virtual software library evolving. So we had those two services, but, but they ended up being the backbone of really how I built CNET into, you know, uh, um, so many people have struggled with getting their content businesses to be large content businesses. And um, the, 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 the download services were effectively a search engine um, in, the, in the heart of, of CNET that allowed me to build a large audience and to move that audience over into the reviews area, the news area, and all the other um, components of the of, of the network. It was really the spine, if you will. Mm -hmm. it, people didn't know it, and we didn't, didn't really talk about it. But it was, um, you know, it was by far and away the, you know, the way that, the best way for me to introduce people to all of our other services. So is the website uh, immediately super successful. You know, this is around the same time as things like Slate and Salon and Hotwired are launching. I had read that like within four months, you had there there were eighty five employees on the website of of the operations. Did it did it take off right away? Um, if there were eighty five people there, say overhired, <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't. The um, well, I mean, we have to keep this in perspective, you know, because Brian, there there were maybe five hundred thousand people on the internet, right? So at the time, so defining success 
at, at that time is it's like it completely doesn't have any relevancy to today. Um, and, you know, honestly, when I first launched and, and, and I believe I even talked to Jerry Yang about this at, at the time and he had similar thing. My big issue was we had people who had used the Internet for years for non-commercial purposes who were, became very upset that, that I was using it for commercial purposes. And so so sort of the first thing that I sort of you know worried about was, you know, upsetting the Apple cart and the flame mail that I would get from people who, you know, saw this basically academic uh, environment being polluted by my con- commercial interests. And so it seems almost uh, unfathomable that that would have been the case, but that really was actually the case. And did the, did the flame emails actually come through? Oh, yeah. Okay. To me? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, and I, I think a long time ago I talked to Jerry Yang about it. He got he got them too, and and so that was kind of like the it was sort of like the first sort of existential crisis of the internet was when uh, was when you know these people started actually setting up you know companies on the internet in the in the midst of those who had who had never uh, had those companies before, and it wasn't uniformly um, and it wasn't uniformly greeted. Um, you know, we were we were. Um, you know, there was there was Hotwired, and we were you know fairly shortly after Hotwired, and we were we were before Yahoo because uh, we launched in April and Yahoo launched in October, mm-hmm. um, and we may have been between three and six months after Hotwired. I can't, I can't remember which, but we were pretty pretty close on their heels. And um, but yeah, no, that was the first. Um, you know, I tell people it's it's hard to believe the the, the phases that these things go through, but you know, the, and 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 they do, and and you know, virtually, virtually every time something new happens, there are these sort of phases of, of awkwardness. And um, that first moment of awkwardness was, you know, hey guys, we're here, and having a lot of the people who were already on the internet got like not so thrilled that we had arrived. We, for us, it kind of went away because we were we were ultimately about technology and 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 giving information, and so many of those who were on the web had to be highly technical early on. So. So we were we were kind of playing to the home crowd in a sense. They weren't they definitely were consumers, that's for sure. So so I mean that that passed. But that was sort of the that was the that was the genesis. Well, so the flip side of that would be, you know, uh, CNET is one of the first sites to um, you know, sell advertising and things like that. So uh, did you have trouble convincing brands that the web was something that could be a, a viable uh, avenue for for advertising and marketing. So the very first people who I thought were selling ads were Hotwired, and when I hired my ad sales <clears throat> staff, uh, I said, "Look, guys, I want to launch with 15 paid advertisers on the internet." And I looked over, and Hotwired had some that were that were running. And so my head of ad sales came back to me, and this is. Um, this is, this is the, the I'm sure this, these facts are almost are are 100 accurate. He came back to me and said, Halsey, we can't do 15 paid advertisers because the, we only believe there are 11 total advertisers on the internet, and only three of them are actually paying. Mm-hmm. And so, so that so so when we launched, it was you know it was a complete bet on a business model that hadn't even begun to take root if it hadn't been for you know hotwired uh and they're i think basically giving free ads or free banners to 
to some of their uh, magazine advertisers, you know, that was, that was sort of the, that was sort of the, the genesis got it all. But I, but it was from, you know, it was, it was very heavy lifting after, after that, because I mean, there really was, there were, there were just nobody. I mean, there just, there were not advertisers when we launched, I mean, for all intents and purposes. So, <clears throat> and fortunately, you know, some money started appearing for these companies um, to spend, but it was all spent learning. It wasn't spent as real advertising. It was spent as advertising as, you know, as a, a way of learning about the internet as a marketing tool. So in a, in a sort of serendipitous way, I mean, CNET is, is, was launched to, to cover this technology revolution, but it's also part of this technology revolution. So, you know, after you, you guys go public in 96 and you start to launch things like news.com and, and it's like all of a sudden the, the organization is going everywhere and it's all tech, but at the same time, tech is exploding. So can, can you speak a little bit about what that was like to, to be covering this revolution, but then also be a part of it because your company is part of the revolution? Well, yeah. So, I mean, it gave us a lot of credibility on the editorial front, the fact that we were, um, you know, that we were a leading website ourselves. And, and I, you know, I think, um, I mean, you may or may not be aware, but, but um, the, the leading software application that people used to publish during the 90s came out of CNET. So uh, I spun, I built an app. Hotwired was the first website to build their website out of a database. We were the second, but I, but I, but I created my software. Um, <clears throat> all of my engineers were in New Jersey, and they all came out of Bell Labs and Bellcore. And so we built this 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 software that made it super easy to you know manage the workflow and all sort of things that you need to do publishing. And and I spun it out into a company that became Vignette, and 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 we took um, and we kept thirty five percent of the company, and our product was called Story Server. Uh, was given to this other company, and like I said, CNET kept 35% of the company, and they they ended up going on and being a 26 billion dollar company. So so the technology and and they, their software, our software, the first uh, the first two or three customers that they had were, were my competitors, Ziff Davis and IDG, and I think CMP, and so so we 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 ended up engineering the software that became you know most. Um, Almost every newspaper that went on the internet used, you know, used uh, Story Server, um, and 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 a very large number of the of the commercial websites did. And so, so we we had both kind of technical chops. You know, people respected us for the technology that we used to build the website, for the technology that we spun out to let other people use build websites. And so, when it gave our editorial voice. Um, was a little sharper and a little louder than it might have other, otherwise been, because as an organization, you know, and in the parlance of the day, we sort of got it, and um, and so it was definitely very helpful for us in cultivating the the brand and an audience to to have to show ourselves that we not only uh, could write about the medium, but that we could actually understood it well enough to actually participate in it uh, to the degree that we did. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. 
Bite Clear liners are doctor directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. And let's talk a little bit about the, the, the dot-com era itself. I mean, obviously, CNET was one of the, the high-flying stocks, you know, one of the 10 or 15 biggest name internet stocks of, of that era. And so, you know, you guys are, are making big acquisitions like everybody else. You know, you, uh, mysimon.com was one of the big ones. And eventually you, you, you do buy uh, Ziff Davis and so sort of merge CNET and ZDNet. Um, so that era, uh, what was it like? Was it just a, you know, there's a, a there's money flowing all around and there's a million directions that you could take this company in. What was, what were you looking to make CNET into and, and, and what were some of the directions that you wish you could have gone in and, and maybe wish you hadn't gone in? So, so, you know, we ended up, we followed a very different path than just about all the other internet companies. Um, and, and because we followed a different path when I left in, February of 2000, we were a NASDAQ 100 company. And the path that we went is, is we focused on very conservatively building a uh, profitable business that was self-supporting. And, uh, and even, even more to the point, Shelby, Bonnie, and I had uh, agreed we would never sell a share of stock until we actually made money as a company. And so that, 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 that day happened in um, either late 97 or early 98. And um, and because um, because we were profitable and because uh, Vignette I mean, ended up contributing, I think when when I left CNET, we had um, about three hundred and seventy million dollars in retained earnings um, and we had about another billion and one of unrecognized gains in Vignette. So we, and we had about a billion and a half dollars in cash, but we'd only raised about one hundred million. So, so we, um, we, uh, we, we ended up when I, when I left, uh, in February of 2000, we were growing 130% year over year. We were a NASDAQ 100 company. We traded at a multiple to earnings. Um, and you were which, one of the, one of the top 10 web properties in the world. You know, all, all, all of CNET network properties put you in the but, top but, 10. But, but our valuation at the height was around seven and a half billion. And there were many companies that were in the twenties and even thirties. Um, so we, we never really, you know, we never really achieved. Um, I used to have people on wall street who would say, say, are, are you bummed that you're the, the word they used was old meat because we'd been on the, you know, we'd been out there and now we were just this, you know, company that, that had to, you know, that had an, an earnings line to walk and a revenue line to walk. And, um, and so for me personally, um, I, I, I think I ended up exactly how I would have wanted it to happen. Um, I mean, there, there, you know, there could have been the thirty-six billion dollar market cap that for a while, and and you know, we never had those moments. We never had the CMGI moments or the even Yahoo moments. Um, we were just a company that ultimately tr- was traded traded on a on a on a multiple like like most companies do today. And um, and so we never really got those same kind of lofty valuations that that many other companies got, but we 
built a company that was, you know, when I left in 2000, I figured very likely to still be around, you know, 10 years or 15 years, or even 20 years later in a world where most companies kind of come and go, you know, and, and where their relevancy kind of comes and goes. And I think even, you know, honestly, today looking at CBS, I, it's um, CBS, I mean, you know, as part of CBS, right. it, it's still, it's still a relevant company. Um, and so I think it happened exactly how, if I could kind of go, go back and say, what was the script? Sure. I would want it to be bigger, but, but never at the cost of, of be, having it be real or respected. And, um, and I think the fact that we were one of, you know, a two, maybe three companies in, in the internet that ever made it into the NASDAQ 100, I think Yahoo made it in, maybe one other company did, but, um, I, I think that was pretty much, well, it was well beyond anything that I ever thought would ever happen. And in looking back on it, I just don't think that I would want to make different decisions that would, you know, possibly have made us more of a kind of a high flyer sort of broadcast.com thing. But um, but at the expense of, you know, of having a, a company that was very sort of genuine and in, 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 in the role that it played and in people's respect for what we did in a lot of ways, including, I think, legitimizing um, the Internet as a medium for journalism. Well, and post uh, CNET, there's a you know a million different projects that you were involved in and companies that you've been involved in that I could ask you with. We could, we could go on for hours, but I specifically wanted to ask you um, about being involved in in the beginnings of Salesforce.com. Yeah, so Mark came and um, and looked me up, and uh, it was it was uh, 1997 actually. Uh, yeah, 1997. <laughs> he gave me his idea and I said, I, I love it. I'll, I'll invest in it. And then he, and then he disappeared for 18 months. And so he, he comes back again we have lunch again. He goes, here's the idea. But this time he was more clear. He, this time he wanted to do it. He didn't know what category before. Now he wanted to do it in, he wanted to do it in, um, in, um, in uh, uh, soft software for salespeople. And he showed me this little prototype that he had kind of put together, which was just a web page. And I said, yeah, I mean, I, I had a, uh, I had a, um, a, um, I, I refused to go on any boards of any other companies while I was running CNEC. So when I wanted to focus, but this was so interesting to me, this, the potential of this, you know, software turning in, into a service. Um, so I said, you know, I'll, I'll invest and, um, and, and agreed to go on his board. And so I don't remember, I mean, I was a substantial part of, and I know Larry Allison put some money in, but I was a substantial part of his of his first round, and then his second round, Larry pulled out to try to disrupt the round, and I think I picked up Larry's piece. But but anyway, by 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 February of two thousand, I um I I put nineteen point five million dollars in the company, and I know when that when we went public, I owned a little over ten percent. Um, so. Maybe call it you know I don't know 13, 14, 15 percent maybe that of the company that I owned and, and one of the reasons I left CNET in 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 February of 2000 was you know I had sort of built that into this Nasdaq 100 company that was profitable you know it was one of the top um, websites in the world uh, and and by far the largest probably in content and I had this and I had a you know 20 million dollar investment in Mark. And except it wasn't in Mark because Mark Mark didn't run the comp company. There was a guy named John Dillon who ran the company. Um, and, and so 
uh, I was investing in, in Mark's concept. Um, so when I left, one of the things that I did was um, spend, you know, a bunch of time helping uh, helping Mark and helping the company, um, really for the next um, uh, four and a half years. And um, and so yeah, I mean, I was, you know, I think I think probably. I think probably Larry Ellison was probably second to me in sort of investing. There weren't any VCs. I was kind of the VC. Um, and so, so I, you know, I, it was to me the whole idea of on demand, you know, even back then was, was, was so compelling that I, you know, I put $19.5 million in Mark's hands to go, you know, take on, you know, take on the world. So, but he had hired John Dillon as a CEO who, who was a very, was a great CEO for the first two years of the company. And and I like John a lot, but he and Mark were not getting along. And, you know, ultimately, you know, one of the two of them was going to have to move on just because, um, you know, they were they were at odds with each other. Um, and so, you know, it was decided that that uh, that Mark would go back and run the company. And uh, and quite honestly, when when that decision was made, you know, I think Mark and I both figured he'd go back for six to nine months and we'd find another CEO. And then we were both, um, I, and I genuinely think we were both surprised at just how good of a CEO he was. Um, and, you know, the rest is sort of history. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, no, so that, you know, Salesforce after, you know, after I left CNET, really Salesforce became, you know, my focus because I had, you know, such a large investment in, in, of amount of money and and you know and it was fortunate because you know back then you know you remember that time period the early 90s like mm. there were there weren't many things you could invest in that were going up in value i mean most of the world was like crashing uh i left seen that it was like 67 dollars was a stock or something and i think it went down to 64 cents uh over the next two years um after i was gone so so it was a very, very, very bad time for the technology industry in general, um, but 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 Salesforce, you know, hit an area that was um, that started prospering around the same time that, that so many other things stopped. Well, and as I said, we could talk about Grand Central, which became Google Voice, things like OpenDNS, but. Uh, maybe we can finish up by uh, tell me about your your latest venture, which is BitReserve. You know, I think of all the things that I've ever done, you know, I've always felt like um, that they've always felt obviously new and interesting, whether it's, you know, music or whatever. This is the first thing that's actually fundamentally felt to me like it's a new Internet. And it just from from the degree of cynicism, you know, there's a lot of cynicism about the early Internet. Um, You know, people believe that it was. you know, people would write about por- there's porn on the internet, and there was, and yes, it was the first business model. But for those of us who were who were building businesses there, we knew it wasn't going to be the only business model. It was just the first. And so, sort of, Bitcoin has the same sort of um, has sort of the same a lot of the same problems in that it is it is um, uh, it has a it has a, it has a negative history associated uh, with it because some of the you know uh, things like um, Silk Road and, and other things some of its first uses, but the concept of having money be a standard that can be exchanged between uh, any two parties that decide to opt in 
is is the same basic thing that drove me to want to uh, build a business on the internet because on the internet there were no gatekeepers. I couldn't nobody could stop me like the cable companies. You know they couldn't stop me from building a uh, from building a service that if people like they could come and, and, and use. And so and so information could for the first time be published by anybody and consumed by anybody. And and innovation could happen around information, and that's what that's what that's what CNET did in our way, and Yahoo did in their way, and many others have since. And so now, for the first time, it's you know where money is something that can be exchanged, you know, freely, and innovation can be can people can innovate on top of money. You, you, the money on top of your in your bank account, in my bank account, nobody can write an app that does anything with our our money, you know. But when it's in the cloud. Which is effectively what we do. Um, then people can build, start building apps, and and all kinds of innovative services can be created. So, so I think that if in in the end, I think the way people are going to see this is people see it as maybe Bitcoin. The way I see it is it's just another example of the cloud replacing uh, a set of services or even institutions. And so, at its core, what we're doing is we're creating cloud money. It's money that that can sit in the um, they can sit in the in the ether that you can connect to with any device. People can connect to our service and, and create applications on top of it. And because it's in the cloud, we we make the business of moving money essentially costless. So uh, unlike credit cards, there are no charges. Unlike uh, unlike uh, the fees that you get when you do wire transfers, um, there's there's no cost. And 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 people, you know, it's. I have to point out to people that you know we don't really use email for different reasons than we use mail. They're almost they're 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 almost pretty much the same. It's hard to find a totally new use of email, but that 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 instantaneous nature of email, for some reason, even though it's just the same as the way the mail system works, the 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 additional ease and speed just makes it almost like a completely different thing. And so what's about to happen to money is the same thing. We have banks and credit cards and we have all these systems and they're very well developed and they and they work reasonably well. Um, but when you when you have the ability to directly control your money, it's instantaneous and it's free to move it around. It just it, it changes everything. And I think what is upon us now is really the Internet. I mean, people are talking about the Internet of Things and I think that's interesting. But I think it's people are overlooking the fact that the Internet of value and money um, is probably and, and since money plays such a profound role for people and, and, and cultures, I think people are missing the degree to which this is like the Internet itself. And I would bet you uh, if you look back 20 years from now, the Internet of money and the Internet of information, I think people will hold an equal regard in terms of their impact uh, and the level of innovation that they have um, that they have created, and when they're taken together, you have information that can be uh, freely and easily consumed, and 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 value that can be freely and easily distributed. You create all sorts of new business models that have uh, that have never existed before. So, so I, I honestly I think we're about to start a whole another chapter. And it has kind of all the ugly, awkward moments that, you know, maybe the early Internet does, did. Um, but I think it's going to have its, they're going to be its, its, its moments where people kind of look back and, and realize that something really profound is in fact happening. And, and this, uh, this profound news story, is it Bitcoin specifically or just blockchain technology in general? 
it, it is it is neither of those. Um, it is the the blockchain is is interesting in the sense that it's the blockchain and Bitcoin are useful to the extent that they have created a system that the governments can't shut down and 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 nobody could compete with the banks because 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 you can't get a banking license right so 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 the reason that you know there's 32 billion dollars in balance check fees in the United States and there's no real honest to goodness um there's no honest to goodness um uh competition in the banking business uh because it's totally get government controlled and, and regulated it's like the airlines used to be or or you know the, the brokerages used to be and and so and 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 nobody wants to have any competition there. So so what Bitcoin created is this is this this way for the first time for people to get excited about creating a separate set of institutions that can compete with the uh, with the primary institutions. The blockchain, the Bitcoin is really a catalyst. It's not it's not the ultimate solution. It's a it's just like you know when when I to, for me to build CNET, I I actually had to build my own web publishing application. To be to be in the business, and, and then I had to decide: Do I want to be in the web, the web software business, or do I want to be in the content business? And I decided the content business, so I sp spun out my software. But I actually had to build all the software to do web publishing because it didn't exist. And so, similarly today, you have to think about um, you have to think about Bitcoin as a um, as kind of like this very um, as this uh, very low level technology. I was I. Um, Matthew Barzin, who was my uh, was my assistant for a couple of years and was with uh, CNET for about nine, is now the ambassador to Great Britain. And I was over visiting with him, and um, and he, we we did a video uh, very early in the company, and he found a copy of it, and and we we tried to sell it. It's called the Ultimate Internet Tour, and he said he goes Halsey. It was so interesting. He said on the on the outside of the of the um, the video, we had things like Usenet. Gopher, Waze, uh, FTP. He said. He said all these like the, I forgot how we used to talk about the internet, but it was like all of these like technologies. And so in the early internet, the internet was really just a set of technologies, and and that's how when, when that's how we talked about it, you know. And if you, if you wanted news, you went to Usenet. You know, you wanted software. Well, you needed an FTP download client. You know, and and, and ultimately that's not how it turned out it turned out as a browser and a, you know a bunch of very consumer you know easy to use uh you know user interfaces that people could take advantage of we're, we're in that gopher usenet sort of thing now and and these are these are technologies that'll get people will build on top of them so that the the actual experience of the end user looks like the apple wallet because that it 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 just the what goes on underneath um, is the advent of a system that is, you know, doesn't take a hundred billion dollars a year in fees out of people's pockets, um, and and you know, and hopefully is um, um, is more, you know, as people will be seeing when we launch, you know, we're creating the first fully transparent financial institution. So hopefully, what happens is that, you know, at least our goal is to start a whole new form of competition around stewardship of money based on transparency. Um, so I think what's what's what is happening now is not it's not about Bitcoin or anything else. It's about it's about creating a system that is for the first time can compete with a system that is like that is a, it's that's a monopoly. It's always been a monopoly. 
Um, and just in the same way that the airlines were monopolies during the grand old age, just, you know, in quotation marks, um, of flying, you know, when only the rich could do it, or, you know, when only the rich could have brokers in the, before the mid-90s. And so now, for the first time, there's the potential for honest-to-goodness competition in the banking business and, uh, and finance. And I think that's why kind of full circle, like I've now actually come back to the very idea that when I left college that I wanted to do, which is really to, you know, to use finance as a means of, um, of you know, in sort of a progressive kind of um, sort of global sort of social, uh, you know, ideas using, um, using um, and, and I think that if, uh, if the governments ultimately let this revolution happen, it will take tens of billions of dollars out of the fee-based income of banks that principally comes from the, from the lower income members of our society in a very short period of time. I mean, like I, I think in, a, in an extraordinary short period of time. Um, and I think so. So I think, you know, we used to always walk around and see that and say we had truth and justice on our side because, you know, we gave away content for free and we helped make people make better decisions about what computers to buy. But, I mean, what's about to happen now, if this, if this, if this you know, if the governments don't stand in the way of competition against the banks is really like a massive tax break for the, you know, the basically the working poor who are going to get all of these bounce check fees and stuff uh, and stuff back. So I think this is both a there's there's a you know, I think that's why there's sort of a religious undertone to all of this, because there's the stakes are in some ways higher than they were with the Internet. Um, but I think it is the uh, I think that the, the social benefit of the Internet was was enormous. And I think the social benefit of the Internet of money will be even more so. Yeah, it, it, it is interesting how how your story really has come full circle in that way. Um, Halsey, uh, thank you so much for, for remembering all that history for us, but also taking us into the future. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, no, thanks for having me, Brian. If you're enjoying this podcast, there's one simple thing that you can do to help us out. If you do nothing else, just go to iTunes and rate us. One to five stars takes about two seconds. Or give us a review because... The weird way that iTunes works is it's not just the number of downloads, it's also the number of ratings and reviews. As always, you can join the conversation at www.internethistorypodcast.com, get more info, see pictures, and see my full bibliography for each episode. The show's Twitter is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening. find cars like these on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader